Welcome to the Myth, Legend, and Lore podcast. Welcome to a gathering of skulls. Today we join Madeline F. White, the author of Mother of Floods. I must say that I found this to be an intelligent, thought-provoking and moving book. The characters are incredibly well-developed. We're drawn in with the intimate details of their lives that as readers we can relate to or sympathise with. Madeline demonstrates such skill in her storytelling and has a wonderful way of weaving various myths and legends from around the world throughout her novel. The passages that Madeline has chosen for today's reading gives us a tantalising glimpse of the story contained within the pages of Mother of Floods. As always, links to find the book and how to get in touch with Madeline will be in today's show description. And in a couple of days, we will upload the episode to the Myth, Legend and Lore YouTube channel. But, without further ado, please welcome Madeline to a gathering of skulls. Hi, I'm Madeline White and I'm a writer from the UK living on the southeast coast of Kent and I'm the author of Mother of Floods. I also edit a couple of magazines, Write On and Write On Extra, digital and print platforms for real people and real voices. All of this is reflective of my work as a storyteller consultant, connecting diverse cultural, geographical and digital communities. My work in publishing and educational technology means that I've had an understanding of the power, both positive and negative, that the digital world has over us. Mother of Floods was written because I wanted to explore how to manifest this more positively, and so connected my love of myth, folklore and ancient history into imagining a mechanism that could connect our spiritual world to our physical energy, while binding in the pixelated world unseen also. So with that in mind, a bit more about Mother of Floods. Our Mother of Floods is a speculative spiritual adventure, focusing on the power of creation within each and every one of us the narrative engages on a very instinctive level, moving from the current day theme of digital overload and capitalist greed into a semi-fantasy world where everything becomes connected. The plot centers around the interaction of six women from different geographies, cultures and backgrounds and is set in this age of downfall. By connecting ancient folklore and mythology to a pixelated dysfunctional present, Mother of Floods morphs from a natural world story of the survival of mankind which may seem dystopian, into a much deeper spiritual exploration of how we can collectively shift what is happening in our world, right here and right now. In the vein of Paolo Coelho, Mother of Floods taps into the courage within, propelling us past the end of the world as we know it, into something new. Mother of Floods, Prologue. Baba John sat in his one room, wrapped in the orange and saffron robes of his calling. 
Despite his long white beard and mane of hair, he had a strong, healthy physique that belied the many decades he had spent in Gangotri. When he had moved into his guru's hut nearly 70 years ago, it had been virtually inaccessible. Not any more, though. These days it seemed as if everyone wanted to come here, and corresponding numbers of roads and houses had been built. India's tiger economy had consumed most of the subcontinent's untouched places, including this, the source of the Ganges. The Western journalist was typical of those who came to see him now, paper people blown here and there by a desire to be whole, and yet missing the point entirely. Did they not realise that pilgrimage started within? One just needed to be, barely registering the woman's proclamation of how her journey would start here, at the birthplace of the goddess Ganga. He cast his mind back to the splendid wilderness as it had been, to the time before the number of those seeking to connect with something beyond themselves had smothered it all. Feeling compelled to pursue those memories, he used the ubiquitous Shanti to cut off his visitor. Watching her departing form, his eyes found relief in the black and white photographs of the once verdant flora and fauna that had covered this region. The next set of images, though, depicting all the hotels and houses that had sprung up in the wake of the receding glacier, caused him to feel physical pain. With each decade, it had got worse, and the farther down Ganges' length one travelled, the more despoiled her healing waters became. By the time she swept out into the Bay of Bengal, this goddess of wholeness and purity, whose wild advent on earth had once needed Lord Shiva's hair to bind her, had become the embodiment of death and decay. There was, however, always hope. He should know. Many years ago, his truth had been broken into pieces, and it was that hope he'd come in search of. Once he'd been Amresh, a bright middle-class Indian boy and typical product of the British Raj, Thanks to a number of unfathomable coincidences, the 18-year-old had been given a chance to study in the UK. Seduced into being part of a culture that was not his, he had grabbed the razor-sharp spires of 1930s Oxford with both hands. At the time, he hadn't realised that he was cutting away his name and colour in the process. It was only 12 years later when the self-styled John had found his hollowly echoing soul too much to bear that he turned clay feet back to this remote part of northern India. As his squeaky, new climbing boots made their way up the Gangotri Glacier, the empty shell of his carefully cultivated identity fell away, leaving a bleeding, childlike soul to stand bare before Gamuk. Released by his scream of brokenness, water seeped from the fissures in the bedrock, lacerated vocal cords heralding a new existence. Having heard his call, a shrunken figure reclaimed him and led him back down to safety. Baba John remembered deep, welcoming eyes of kindness. He had come as a seeker, but was told when the time came that he was to become the next watcher. As his damaged voice recovered, so did his soul, and like raven's wings, a sense of purpose brushed his consciousness. He must wait. Another would come. There would be other screams, more pain, but no longer his. By the time he was back on his feet again, his rescuer had taken to the pallet John had so recently vacated. From his deathbed, hoarse whispers set his successor's task. The time is coming when the balance will be lost. The world of spirit and our physical world will be consumed by one that is yet unseen. This emerging dimension will take the Earth's energy, causing Ganja to fail. But in her death throes, the next seeker will be bathed 
A weak hand clawed at his sleeve and the inexorable will of a dying man shaped the rest of Baba John's life. Watch for the signs. You must help the next seeker shape this destruction. Only so can resurrection be found. Casting his mind back, the nonagenarian remembered the billowing acrid smoke from the perfumed fire as if it were yesterday. It still breathed it in, though along with his predecessor's prophecy. When I die, you will be the last watcher, the very last of our lineage. You will watch for the failure of the Ganges and the seeker able to harness the energy of the death of one source to the birth of another. You will find her, but she will not know you. She will, though, recognise your will. It will cause her to blaze out, calling others also. They will release the spirit realm along the ancient path it once owned in the physical world to pass into a new one. He died shortly afterwards, and, as with countless generations of watchers before, the passing of one transferred visions and signs into the consciousness of another. The succession of impressions that flooded through the new watcher bore no relation to anything meditation had allowed him to access previously. It came at him much faster than he was able to process, and he had himself drowned in this information. The reality of it was unbearable. Then it stopped. In his mind's eye, the fissures of Galmut closed up and Ganja's waters ceased. There was a moment of blessed silence. From that emerged a throbbing, like a heartbeat at the centre of the earth. It made him feel he was not alone, made him believe that the seeker's voices would eventually come to him. But when he thought he heard the screams of new voices through the reassuring regularity of the thrum, his momentary calm turned once again to an anxious urgency. It took him back to the beginning of his journey, when he had chosen to be known by the Western name that had caused his own primal scream, prefixed with the bubba that bound him to his sadhu vow. It was a reminder of what was needed. Reluctantly, the old man dragged himself back to the task at hand, seeking the reassurance of the familiar, his eyes swept over the pictures one more time. In the end, all his meticulous records had proven unnecessary. Having come back from an arduous trek to Ganges source, only yesterday her death had been clear for all to see. All that remained of the bubbling crystal waters was a red-tinged pool. It confirmed what he had suspected weeks ago. The age of the downfall was upon them. In order to be reborn, creation would have to be consumed if anything was to be salvaged, he must hear the call of the next seeker. He pulled the curtain across, trying to settle into a meditative state. Baba John found that a grey cloud of fear was stopping his spirit from soaring. Despite scouring his memories for other reassuring moments, the gathering gloom became increasingly suffocating. His guru had been mistaken. He wasn't up to it. The last seeker was too elusive. He wouldn't be able to find her, let alone help her shape what was to come. To still his ragged breathing, he started humming. And then it came. Thump, thump. A steady drumming that reminded him of that first heartbeat. The same need that had once forced a scream of rebirth propelled him beyond the smothering darkness to the place the physical and spiritual planes met, the source. Here he must wait. This was where the calls of those who were broken would echo. Among them would be the seeker, 
the one who would bind the new energy as Shiva had once bound Ganga. Only so would the coming flood be managed. But even as he assimilated this newfound knowledge, he recognised there was something missing and returned from the elsewhere that kept on eluding him. He reached for the ancient Shishan box in the hut's darkest corner, the faint heartbeat getting louder as he disturbed the heavy dust that covered it. The last time he'd opened it was 65 years ago. He remembered his eyes sliding over the pages of writing as if it were yesterday, how he hadn't been able to hold on to the sense of what he was reading, hoping that in his hour of need the underlying beat signalled some kind of approval. Baba John went to decipher the learnings that passed down the long line of watchers. Some sheets were typed, some handwritten, most were yellowing. The oldest rolls of parchment were right at the bottom, though. Unrolling them, he found that this time the spidery Sanskrit flowed into him. Whistling through his remaining teeth in triumph, he allowed himself to surrender to the truth of the story. Like Ganges, Turtle Island held many beginnings. Flood, sacrifice, death and rebirth. As the words and messages rolled over him, they also passed through him, as if casting out a net to their rightful owner. He no longer needed meditation to straddle the dimensions. In this new state of omniscience, he started to see how inevitable the devastation was. He also saw, though, that even an unstoppable flood could be directed if the channel was deep and wide enough. Chapter 1, Introduction to Martha, main character in the book who has had a life unravelling since her husband, Dave, died. Glancing up the toiletries aisle, she spotted the makeup wipes. She made a grab for two packs that were on special offer and plonked them in her basket with a sense of satisfaction. The thudding at the back of her head had got even louder, a sure sign that her anxiety was getting out of hand. To focus on the practical, she surreptitiously looked for any telltale damp patches under her armpits. She stopped in her tracks. Her hand had disappeared, and the basket she was holding was floating in midair. Closing her eyes, she felt an odd counterpoint heartbeat thrumming through her entire being. What was happening? When she finally plucked up the courage to open them again, she heaved a sigh of relief. Her hand was most definitely back where it belonged again, flesh bulging out around the wedding ring she hadn't as yet been able to get off. She felt tears well up. In the real world, it wasn't just her hand disappearing, it was all of her. Not even her children saw her anymore. They just wanted her to do and get things for them. She looked back down at her hands and realised that something had to give. As she focused on the last echoes of the beat she had felt run through her, she hoped to goodness it wouldn't be her sanity. An introduction to Badana. Badanan woke with a start. The she-wolf had been there again, growling and prowling, hiding in the shadows of the country house in Kurdistan's Agros Mountains. The dark one of legend was lying in wait for the lost girl who had once lived there. It had been at their family retreat near Slimani, perched right on Dukan Lake with its whitewashed walls and its blue-tiled veranda. The image remained vivid, even all these years on. Her father had been barbecuing skewers of goat's meat and sitting on the shaded veranda overlooking the lake. Her aunties had been responsible for the heat platter of stuffed vine-leaf dolma, 
Her older sister, a sophisticated student in her final year, sat there exuding glamour, the red of her fitted summer dress matching that of the kitten heels she refused to take off. Their beautiful mother was heavily pregnant and unmoving in her unwieldiness, one hand shading her sea-green eyes and the other waving a brightly coloured fan. Badnan's uncle pinched the 15-year-old's cheek harder than necessary. His patting of her bottom was also inappropriate. Even now, the 52-year-old felt outrage at these over-familiar advances, sneaked when no one was looking. However, the endless rounds of fluffy pergat flatbread and then the coffee... If she kept her eyes closed, she could smell the cardamom, see her bed, and the beautifully woven carpet she'd set her slippers on. Despite Badnan's near womanhood, her mother, hands jingling with delicate filigree bangles, had tucked her in. And the cloves, the unique scent that clung to Kurdish women, thanks to the necklaces made of the dry buds that also hung round the house, it all meant home. And then it had changed. The smouldering barbecue and the soft, laughing voices turned into hot, devouring smoke. When fear turned to panic and goat's meat became crackling flesh, she saw the yellow, watchful eyes for the first time. From the stories of her people, she knew they meant danger and harm. But oddly, in all the chaos, they provided a measure of comfort. So instead of running away, she had followed the grey form out through the smoke-filled corridor and into the scrubland beyond. The wolf had waited for her while allowing her to cling to the silvered ruff, should somehow hidden the girl from the uniformed figures that were everywhere. As the air became less choking, Badenan had dared to close her streaming eyes. But when she opened them, just moments later, she realised she was alone, hidden by the remnants of a stone wall. Gasping for breath and rubbing her eyes to clear her vision, she tried to catch a last glimpse of her companion. However, look as she might, the parched red earth gave no hint of the wolf's passing, and, other than revealing many booted footprints, it also did not share where Seamin if her family had been taken that day. She lay quite still in her bed, unwilling to open her eyes. The memories of her aunties, the red dress, the food and the safety had been so powerful. As if to catch a taste of the feast she'd remembered so clearly, she moved her tongue around her mouth. But it had fled, along with the memory of most of her family. This passage is from the end of the chapter that introduces Mercy, a would-be entrepreneur from Zimbabwe, who is lost in the shadows of her life, dreaming of better things for her and her disabled mother, until a song and a fish eagle change her way of thinking. It was a song of praise to Hungwe, the Zimbabwe bird, the fish eagle. Passed down the generations from mother to daughter, from father to son in their family, it represented who they were and what they would be. Tears were running down her cheeks in earnest now, and she barely noticed the scraping of the bowl. Only when Tsitsi started working the moringa cream into her hands did they stop. As she surrendered to the pleasure of her daughter's touch, she registered that the singing had got stronger. Tsitsi had obviously stopped feeling self-conscious. The service has been rendered, we revere you, bird. We who belong to you who fly. My dear one who reveres the bird, the bird is the fish eagle. The song of praise sat easily with mercy. The words remembered from her earliest childhood and then the time of pain back in the village. Her mother was humming, tears meandering past closed eyelids, down sunken cheeks. Did mercy exist after all? She noticed her mother squeezing her wrist even harder. 
See, noises approximating her name. Her eyes flew open. There on the balcony of the bedroom, a bird had come to rest, nearly too big for the rusty railing that held it, yet it still perched majestically. Contrast between the white upper body and tail and the chestnut belly and black wings was unmistakable. What was it doing here? The nearest lake was Lake Manyame, miles away. She looked down at the wonder in her mother's eyes. There she found her answer. Her song to Hungway had called him to them. She had dreamed and he had come. Slowly, Mercy backed out of the door and then, when she was sure that she was no longer in the great bird's line of sight, ran the last few steps to the fridge, wrenching open the door. Now he'd come, she had tried to get him to stay or at the very least come back. She pulled out the bowl of chicken she'd been having for her dinner. Back in her mother's bedroom, a tableau greeted her. Eagle and woman, movement and calm, stillness, power. She moved over to open the door of the balcony. He stayed. As she put down the chicken on the scrappy plastic table, he leaned forward and with a shake of his feathers and flash of yellow beak accepted her offering. No time had passed and yet all the time in the world was contained in the next moments. Finally, the fish eagle leapt into the sky. Blackly silhouetted against the evening sky, his two-metre wingspan overshadowed the entire balcony. For a moment he looked like another bird entirely. As she readied herself for bed that evening, she pulled out something she had hidden behind her nightclothes, the recipe for the moringa cream and the business plan that went with it. It was time to start dreaming again. I believe we have the power of creation within us. This has been demonstrated again and again in my life and through the stories of all those women and men I have heard and shared, many of them contained within Mother of Floods. When I started writing Mother of Floods three and a half years ago, it was evident that climate change, nationalistic tribalism and systemic cruelty and inequity were causing us to spiral down a vicious circle that was spinning ever faster. However, I had no idea of what would be on the horizon, certainly not the pandemic we are facing now. Storytellers have an important role as both guardians and gatekeepers of culture, and history and stories are a method by which we record this shifting culture. With that in mind, by collating individual stories, I wanted to build a central narrative showing that change is possible. In particular, that this can happen when we come together, that together we can navigate our way through times that are frightening and different and like nothing we've ever had before. If you would like to find out more about Mother of Floods and my work in general, please do get in touch with me via social media on Instagram or Twitter at Madeline F. White. Mother of Floods is also available in bookshops in the UK, US and Canada, as well as on Amazon at amazon.co.uk.com or .ca. I look forward to hearing from you. Goodness, thank you so much, Madeline. If you have enjoyed today's episode, then please check out the Alternative Stories podcast. They recently produced a wonderful audio drama called The Ark, which was written by Madeline and was adapted from Mother of Floods. It's absolutely smashing work from the entire team. The music in today's episode was provided by Belen Prado. 
from her album Enchanted Flute and Kai Engel's endless story about the sun and moon. Both artists can be found on Bandcamp and all links will be in the show description over on the Podbean website. If you'd like to get in touch with Madeline, hop on over to Twitter where you will find her under at Madeline F. White. My sincere thanks go to Madeline today for sharing Mother of Floods with us. It's absolutely wonderful. Thank you. But for now, do take care. You've been listening to A Gathering of Scalds. I'm Siobhan Clark, and this is the Myth, Legend and Lore podcast.